0: Good morning, New Heights, and to all of you who are joining our online service today. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to jump right in. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And as you're heading there, let me set up the text and tell you where we're going today. So Peter declared back in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus was the Messiah, that is the long-awaited Savior King. And ever since then, Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem and to the cross. And as the disciples realize that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, they have been talking about who among them is the greatest. Why? Because they most likely wanted to know who'd be left in charge when Jesus is gone. And if you remember, in response to all the talk of who is the greatest, Jesus, in chapter 9, he takes a little child and he puts the toddler in the middle of them as an object lesson. And in Matthew's account, it says Jesus told them, unless you change, that means turn around, go in the opposite direction, and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew eighteen three, And this is important because Jesus is basically going to repeat this in today's story. He's going to say that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. And there is historical and cultural nuance here, so we're going to have to unpack that to find out what it means. And then we're going to get another object lesson in the form of a wealthy young man who embodies the opposite of what Jesus is holding up as valuable in children. And it's a stark contrast. And I believe that it's incredibly relevant for us today as apprentices of Jesus. So let's begin in Mark chapter 10 in verse 13. I'm going to go verse by verse as we exposit the text. It says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And I don't know if the disciples were just in a bad mood or if they didn't like kids or what, but it was a custom in Jewish culture to have a prominent rabbi lay hands on your kids and bless them in prayer kind of like our baby dedications today. And in verse 14, it says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So Jesus was like, knock it off, you guys. I'm not too busy. I have time for the children. And while we're at it, let's turn this into a teaching moment about my kingdom. Because What is valuable in my reign in this age and in the one to come is the status and posture of these little ones. Verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. And most scholars agree that Jesus is teaching here that to fully live in his kingdom we must embrace the status and posture of little children. So let's talk about status first. To understand just how radical, how upside down Jesus' kingdom is? We have to understand that in the ancient world, children were at the bottom of the social hierarchy, right next to slaves and servants. And the Jews were a very stratified society. To them, it made sense to think like the disciples had earlier in terms of who is the greatest and Who's in charge? But Jesus is saying, unless you turn all the way around and abandon your pursuit entirely of upward mobility to the top spot of the social ladder, and instead of following your own will as my apprentice, you follow my example, which some have called a spirituality of descent. And you give your life away. You become a servant rather than grasping for more position. Unless you do that, You'll miss out on the life of the kingdom, and you'll miss out on the life to the full that God has for you. And in this cultural moment, it is hard to hear Jesus tell us to take the status of children. It's hard because we live increasingly, due in large part to social media. We live in an honor slash shame culture where more and more emphasis is placed on your status within the group. And as it was in Israel, it is today with Instagram. And that's why Jesus' words here are so important. In our culture, where your value in society is based on how many followers you have, your clothes, your watch, your car, title, education, who you know, how well-read you are, how much you've traveled, the restaurants you eat in, you get it. All in an attempt to elevate your status in other people's eyes. And if you play this game, it's only a matter of time until someone gets hurt. And Jesus is saying, don't play the game. Matthew 18, verse 4, he says, whoever humbles himself like this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And how exactly are these children great? Well, think about it. Humble people can handle the power of God without it going to their head. So they can be entrusted with greater kingdom assignments. And they're like their humble servant, Savior, who is Lord over all that's taking on the humble status of a child. But what about their posture? What about inward character? Scholars point out that two character traits of children in Jesus' day were, number one, that children received everything as a gift from their parents. They had complete and total dependence on mom and dad for love and provision. And number two, Children worked hard to serve others at that time in history. And I know a lot of you parents are hearing that and you're probably going, wow, how times have changed, right? Well, let's make some application here before we move on. To embody what Jesus is saying about children in the kingdom, we need to be good at receiving God's mercy, His love and provision with grateful hearts. And then we need to let that flow through us to serve and love others. Amen? And we work hard to serve the church in the world. You might want to write this down. Greatness in the kingdom, by God's definition, is about service, not status. It's not about hierarchy, but humility. It's not about greed, but about gratitude. Amen? So we're talking about children who have nothing. They don't have status or power or possessions. They're grateful to receive. And in our next story in Mark's gospel, we have a guy who has everything. And the contrast to what Jesus has just said about children is striking. The rich young ruler we encounter next is the epitome of the slogan, he who has the most toys wins. He's a man who is pulled together. He has degrees from the right schools. He's on the partnership track. He's already made millions before he's 30. And yet, to his surprise, he finds himself seeking out gurus and rabbis saying, I'm still missing something. So let's read together, starting in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. So there's some urgency here. And he fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life, finally, someone asks the question, the one we've all been waiting for. Now, this question in the first century was a bit different from our modern evangelism where people ask, how do you go to heaven when you die? People in Jesus' day were looking for a savior king who would usher in what was called the age to come, also called the coming kingdom. So this rich young guy, and I should probably add good looking because it's hard to be rich and young and not be good looking, right? So this guy, he's asking Jesus, how do I stand on the earth with the one who becomes king of the heavens and the earth? Now, Jesus answer is a bit surprising. Let's read verse 18. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus was up to here. Maybe he's questioning this guy's view of goodness in people. And maybe Jesus is asking, do you recognize that my goodness comes from God? We don't know for sure, but Jesus takes the conversation back to Moses And the law, also known as the Jewish Torah. Let's read verse 19. He says, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, in asking whether this guy has lied or stolen or is treating his parents right, Jesus could have been asking, if he's acted in justice and kindness and fairness in his accumulation of his wealth, that's possible. But the young man answers in verse 20, teacher, he declared all these I've kept since I was a boy. So this guy's like, I'm a Torah observant Jew. I'm a good Jewish boy. The 613 commandments in the Torah, I've kept all of those. Just like Paul said in Philippians 3.16, When it comes to keeping the law, I was blameless. But even though this guy has everything and he's religious off the charts, you pick up in the story that something's missing. There's this gnawing ache, uh, restlessness in his soul. And Jesus can see it. Verse 21a, Jesus, it says, looked at him and loved him. And that word looked in the Greek is emplepo, which means to see inside of a person. And Jesus saw the condition of this guy's heart, and he says in verse 21b, One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So Jesus says to this guy, Sell it all, your money, your stuff, give it to the poor, and then come, be my apprentice. Now, The standard answer a rabbi should have given on how to inherit eternal life in first century Judaism was to keep the 613 commandments in the Torah. That was it. But you're saying more Jesus? Yes, that's right. What you're missing is discipleship to me, to believe in me and to follow me. I am eternal life. And to be in relationship with me, you need to abandon your trust and your security and all your stuff and give yourself over to relationship with me and following my way. And if you do that, you'll have treasure in heaven. And a lot of people interpret that to mean when you die, but New Testament theology makes it clear that heaven is the place where God dwells. It's God's storehouse of the future as well. So Jesus means that you will have the treasure of God's presence now and in the future. And the significance of this whole scene is the condition of this guy's heart and Jesus call to discipleship. Jesus is inviting him to invest all his money and his stuff in the kingdom of God, a literal application of Matthew 6:33 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells us all, seek first his kingdom and righteousness. But what happens? Well, what happens is what happened to me at the age of 18 when the Spirit of Jesus called me to follow Him. I had to count the cost. This believing in and following Jesus meant that my life would look different. This would affect everything, my habits, my relationship with my girlfriend, everything. The trajectory of my life would be to say yes to Jesus in all things. But for our rich, young, and good-looking guy, he couldn't make the exchange of his life for the life that Jesus offered. He started to imagine life with no villa, no staff, no servants, no high-end clothing, no fine wine, no status and privilege, a life of just having enough. And verse 22 says at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad. That literally means grieving because he had great wealth. You see, for this guy, money wasn't just a gift from God. It had deceptively become his God. As best as we can tell, his money was the center of his identity. So this would be giving up the core of his being. It would be a death of sorts, like taking up his cross to follow Jesus. And as this guy begins to walk away, Notice that Jesus doesn't lower the bar like, oh no, man, I was only kidding about that sell-all-you-have thing. I mean, I'll take tithing. Tithing's good enough. Turn around, dude. Just put up your hand and say yes to Jesus. No, Jesus doesn't lower the bar. There's no sales pitch. Jesus is just like, do you believe that I'm worth it? And if so, give up everything and follow me and be my disciple. Become Like a dependent child, and believe that I am your life, I am your righteousness, and the kingdom of God is worth it. And the guy, he hangs his head and he walks away. And as he's leaving, Jesus comments to his disciples, verses 23 through 27. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Okay, let's be honest Jesus has a lot of teaching on money, and not one of them is positive in the light of our culture. And we want to explain away his teaching, but we can't because he's explicit how hard it is for the rich to enter and live in the kingdom of God. Now, let's be clear. Jesus' directions to this guy aren't absolute for everyone. Like, to become a Christian, you have to take a vow of poverty. No, Jesus isn't saying that poverty is the ideal way to live. But he is calling into question that wealth is the ideal way to live. Because Jesus sees the good in a life of simplicity. It can make us humble, dependent, and free from what A.W. Tozer called the tyranny of things. And Jesus does see the evil that wealth can bring, the pride, the independence, the distraction to kingdom service. And what we see in Jesus' life and his ministry is that money is a tool And used in the right way, it helps to advance God's kingdom. But just like with any powerful tool, if you don't use it right, it can be dangerous. Okay, let's wrap up with and finish the text. Let's read verse 28. It says, Then Peter spoke up and he said, We've left everything to follow you. So Peter spoke up and said what everyone was thinking, but had the wisdom not to ask. Like, what about us? (laughs) We've left everything. We said yes. And and it was true. Peter, James, and John. They gave up lucrative fishing businesses to follow Jesus. I mean, Peter owned a boat. That's a big deal in the first century. I mean, these guys were successful businessmen. I mean, even today, it's pretty good if you own a boat, right? And Matthew, he was a wealthy tax collector, and he left it. They all left home, family, family. And that's a big deal in the first century in a community-based culture. I mean, nobody wanted to travel to go find themselves. (laughs) And And I love these next verses, 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. That means left fields because this was an agrarian culture. So that means leaving a source of income. For my sake and for the gospel, will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, don't forget that, and in the age to come, eternal life. And this is the beauty of the kingdom of God. You leave your house, you end up with a place to stay in every town. You leave your family and you end up with brothers and sisters and moms and dads in God's family all over the world. And then there's this head spinning line at the end. It's verse 31. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And this is the irony of the story that the children right before this passage, the children who have nothing, they're dirt poor. And yet we read theirs is the kingdom of God. So these children, they have the kingdom and they have the king right now and in the age to come. But in contrast, the young man, he's rich rich. He's the epitome of success. He has it all, but now and in the age to come, he has nothing or very little if he's even there at all. The irony is thick. So now let's take a step back and look at all of this. In honesty, these passages of scripture, they put great tension on my life. On the one hand, I have a huge amen in my heart because for me, these verses, they're not just theoretical. They describe my walk with Jesus over the last 30 years. I mean, I have experienced firsthand that hundredfold blessing that comes from obedience to the call of Jesus. When I was just a young Christian, I felt the spirit of God leading me to leave home and family to join a missions organization known as YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And I literally had to sell my possessions to help fund it. I mean, sold my TV, my car, whatever it took to follow where Jesus was leading. And a year later, I remember I was in the mountains of El Salvador bringing the good news to remote villages, and all the money I had in the world was literally in my back pocket, and yet I felt so free. I knew that I was fully invested in my father's work and that he would take care of me, and he did, and he does, and I wish I had time to describe the hundredfold provisions that I've experienced since then. It would literally take hours to tell all the stories the miracles that my family and I have experienced. And they're ongoing. A more recent example was our move to Fayetteville to work with New Heights. In 2011, Marla and I became convinced that Jesus was leading me to resign from my position in the ministry I was directing in Kansas City and to move to Fayetteville. One major cost, however, to following the Spirit's lead was that I would have to sell our home And I have to confess that I loved our house in Kansas City, probably loved it too much because it broke my heart to leave it. I mean, a year after we sold the amazing house at the end of the cul-de-sac, I went back to see it and to check on the trees that I had transplanted by hand from my grandparents' farm before they sold it. I mean, I was invested in this property, and as I turned on my street and I saw the house, I burst into tears and just cried for like 20 minutes in my car. I know (laughs) I was crazy about that home, but I believe that Jesus and his kingdom was worth it. And again, I wish I had time to tell you how formational that move was in my life and the stories of the hundredfold provisions and gifts and rich relationships that we've experienced since then. But I mentioned these things, to testify to the truth of the promises of the word of God. This isn't just a pie-in-the-sky teaching of Jesus, it's reality. And this lifestyle, these promises, they're not just for people who are called into full-time ministry like me. This is for everyone. And I know that so many of you could also testify to the fullness that you've experienced in the kingdom of God as you have followed Jesus' lead, regardless of your vocation. And the older I get, the more I have in my bank accounts and the more stuff that I accumulate, I mean, I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be homeless. I, I don't want to be itinerant. I like my city, my house. And Jesus' life and his teachings, though, still put tension on me. And I have to ask, am I all in for the kingdom? Is his reign and righteousness my first love and pursuit? Have any of the blessings of God in my life become idols in my heart? Am I free from the pursuit of status Am I free from impression management, trying to impress others? Am I dependent and grateful like a little child and do I work hard to serve others? Or am I caught up in the narcissism of our culture? So as I follow Jesus, I have constant decisions to make to walk away sad or by faith to live a life shaped not by what I think is cool and comfortable, but shaped by the values of my King and His kingdom. So one question to ask ourselves is, does money serve us or do we serve money? And the problem when it comes to the kingdom is that money can anchor our hearts to this world and not to the age to come. It makes us focus on a world that is passing away and not on the world that is coming to pass. The mission of God, the restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. And if you're thinking, wow, Kev, like you're really serious about this. I am. (laughs) It's because I want for me, I want for us as a church, what I want is eternal life in the future and in the present. And eternal life is more than just living with eternal duration. It is that, but it's more. It's also about a quality of life with God and his people. An example of this is John 17, 3 that says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, have relationship with the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So when we follow the way of Jesus, we begin to live an eternal God kind of life. And Greek scholars are increasingly saying that a better translation for eternal life is the life of the age to come. And we can participate in that life now through the life of the spirit of Jesus in us. So let me ask, how's your heart as you hear all these things? Are you doing well or are you experiencing some conviction? And if you are, remember that Jesus looked at this guy and it says he loved him. He wasn't mad or angry. Instead, he was filled with empathy for the man. And he says, let it go and embrace me. I love you and I want you to experience life with me now and forever. So friends, will you accept Jesus' invitation today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your example and your teaching today, and that you're not asking us to do something that you have not already done. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that though you were rich, you became poor for our sakes. You left the riches of incomparable glory to come to earth and become like us. And even more, you became the servant of all, taking on all of our sins at the cross. Help us to change. Become like little children dependent on you for our righteousness and our provisions and help us to always seek first your kingdom as we continually follow you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.